Hello and welcome to another episode of Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Churthers. So far, over almost eight years, I've dealt exclusively in one way or another with things we ingest. Today, it's time to take a look at the other end of the story. You have to understand that if we eat, we're going to excrete. Donald Worcester is a retired professor of history who grew up in the 50s on a small place in West Kansas. We had backyard privy. We had a backyard toilet. We were poor people. We were working class people on the outskirts of a small town. The streets were dirt and there was no sewage system and all the rest. So I knew intimately winter, summer, around uh, the experience of basically, you know, outdoor plumbing. And uh, maybe that's why I'm so interested in the subject today. But I, I said Donald Worcester was retired, but he still teaches at Renmin University of China in Beijing. And a little while ago, he published an essay called The Good Muck, subtitled Toward an Excremental History of China. Muck, in this case, is basically feces, mostly human, with maybe some urine and some other nasties thrown in for good measure. And Chinese agriculture depended very much on recycling this muck back to farmers' fields. One of the first detailed accounts to reach the West of how the system worked was written by Franklin King in around 1911. King was a strong believer in the need to maintain soil fertility, unlike some of his colleagues who poo-pooed the whole idea. His book is called Farmers of Forty Centuries. And Donald Worcester's The Good Muck is a more scholarly and up-to-date account. As a title, Farmers of Forty Centuries has a nice ring to it. But have the Chinese really been recycling their muck for 4,000 years? I think it's much less than that. I don't think we can find any traces, uh, certainly before 3,000. Probably, according to my own friends who do agricultural history in China, the earliest real records are about 2,000 years old. But the growth doesn't take place till much later. And it's really in the time of the Song Dynasty, which is uh, about 1,000 common era, you know, medieval Europe, that it becomes widely used, not just by a few, for the common farmers of China. I don't think it really becomes a significant uh so we're really talking about a thousand years ago, not four thousand. Uh, yeah, feces, urine, all mixed together. I mean, it's not a nice substance. So how did the Chinese f come to be using it on the land? Uh, the reason that I think it developed so strongly in China, and I don't know the history of its use all over the world, but I know that in Europe, of course, human excrement has been used. Uh, but I don't think to the same extent or the same developed economy that came about in China. What I, what we might call, you know, the feces economy. Um, but it was, it, I think it developed in China because first of all, because of its great agricultural foundations, China developed one of the world's biggest pop and most dense populations. More and more people packing onto the land. China has always had a fourth or a fifth of the world's population. 
it far out exceeded any of the older agricultural societies and civilizations. You just can't keep doing that. You can try to alleviate it by by migration, and the Chinese have been migrating all over their landmass for thousands of years. The, uh, the Chinese finally run out of lands. I mean, they're hemmed in in some ways by so many other countries, empires. And China is an extremely mountainous country. I didn't realize the mountainous of it until I actually went there. I didn't have that image at all. Not not for most of the China, but everywhere you turn on the land on the horizon, it seems there's a mountain. So their arable land was always short, and compared to say the United States or probably France, I don't know. Per capita, they they were always short. They're good good soils, good land for agriculture, and their populations just kept growing and growing no matter what they did. I mean, people were having five and six children, and that's pretty common. Too many of them were surviving for the families to just continue, so they had to do something. And they did not have, after a while, much much room for livestock. <laughs> they have a shortage of farm animals. Clearly there was enough food for this growing population. Well, they had to feed themselves, but uh, what... I mean, which came first? The, the the surplus of food or the or the surplus of people and their excrement? I would strongly argue, along with Esther Bosrup, the Danish economist, that it is population growth that pu- pushes innovation, pushes change. Of course, once you get the change in place, if it works well, if it's a good change, it will allow you to go on increasing and could even lead to a population explosion. So I think it's... It's a two-way process. More people, they want their babies to survive. They want babies They, for lots of reasons. We all want babies. Everything in nature wants babies. <laughs> and so, they. but the great thing about the human species, and the Chinese were really great at this, was innovation, ideas. How, we, how can we do this differently? So we're always finding our way out of the trap. And And how does this... This feces economy, how does it develop? Well, I think it it develops from two sources. One is the the continuing population on the farm, and people begin to leave, and they begin to settle in cities. So urbanization begins really early in China. And you get cities by the Ming Dynasty that are in the millions, millions of people, cities that most Westerners don't even know about. <laughs> we don't even know their names, or if we do, they're they're not familiar to us. But uh, Hangzhou, Suzhou, and those cities have got all of this excrement from these people, and they don't know what to do with it. It's piling up on the streets. You know, it's really a mess. And so many of these people who are coming to the cities have come from the countryside. Of course, they all have, and they're familiar with the use of fertility. And so networks of Trade and commerce and collecting and distribution begin to develop an economy based on poor peasants uprooted from the land, living in, in the cities, trying to make a living. And they turn to this. They deal with this stuff. They go around from house to house picking this stuff up in the early morning, night soil, they called it, and taking it in wagons or carts or just simply in buckets on their shoulders down to a riverbank and putting it on barges 
And then they would paddle those barges up and through the canals to where farmers lived, and they would sell it to them in villages or farm to farm. So uh, King describes them as a kind of gondoliers, Venetian gondoliers that have great voices. I'm sure these Chinese guys were singing too. In fact, I think there is some record that they they sang songs. So they're singing as they push their way up and in and out of all these canals with huge mountains of muck in their gondolas. That's how the economy develops. And then it develops grades and grades and qualities of manure and animal manure, all of it different prices. And they're performing a service for the city and presumably for households too. Are they getting paid at both ends? Is is the city paying them to clean up? Are people paying them to take the muck away? Or are they just performing a service because they get paid at the other end? I'm not sure about all the intricacies from town to town. Uh, but these people are extremely poorly paid. It's, it's bare survival, subsistence wages. The organizers of all of this may have contracts. I don't think the cities themselves are involved. I think this is purely private entrepreneurs. The people wanting to get rid of it were not paying them because this was a marketable commodity any more than you would pay somebody to take away your bottles and cans if they could make money out of it. I mean, you know. But, but I do. I pay, <laughs> I pay <well>, garbage <laughs> tax. That's because the price of the stuff that uh, you are you are putting into the refuse is so low for the recycling world that uh, there's no money in it. So finding a, a way to make a profit on it is is difficult. But for these early muck collectors, these in cities, they had a market. These farmers were desperate for any kind of excrement. I tell the story in there of a man in a village who brilliant entrepreneur. He decides that his village needs an outhouse, a really nice, fancy toilet. And they whitewash it inside and out so it looks clean. So it's just, you know, two holes in the ground, I think. But he also provided toilet paper. It may be the Chinese who invented toilet paper. So anybody who's on the road passing, travelers from the city to merchants, you know, Anyone who wants has a free use in this place, free use, free public toilet with toilet paper. And then this guy collects it and sells it and makes a profit. So he's a collecting fertility nutrients from everywhere. <laughs> in the big cities, in these giant urban centers, um, were they providing public amenities of this sort? Not until later. The only city I know where anybody has really done some studies of this is the coastal city of Tianjin, which was a treaty port. All the European powers were there and had their sections. There was a British port. There was an Italian section, uh, a big city on the coast that not far from Beijing. And they had a very well-organized system by the 19th century, the later 19th century. They had a well-organized system of public toilets. You and I probably would not want to visit one of these places. But for people at the time, this was a breakthrough. And and who was collecting? I mean, 
did individual collectors have access to specific public toilets? Well, the the city um, essentially had a kind of privatization of all of it. They didn't build the toilets. They contracted with various entrepreneurs, and these guys would set up a system or chain of toilets in their neighborhood, and they had big battles and fights over territory and market and so forth. But they were pretty, in the in some cases in the early years, they were pretty shabby. They were just a, you know, a, a, an outdoor place with matting, you know, nothing, nothing even to keep out the cold winter winds. You know, little children in danger of falling into these places and on and on. It's really. So then the local people had to pay something small, but nonetheless, some kind of pittance to to use these public facilities because they had no indoor facilities, no no closets to go into and no sets of chamber pots in the like the the, the aristocracy or the wealthy people would have. So it was basically the streets or or nowhere. Yes, and of course the, the the bourgeoisie of China did not want it on the streets, especially in front of their house. So they were quite behind all these projects to get something done to clean this up. But China had terrible urban water pollution problems, as you can imagine, from all of this pollution that was just seemed to be endless. It just grew and grew and grew. And nobody knew what to do with it. And nobody took any responsibility. I mean, as they say, when you got to go, you got to go. You, you don't think about how I got into this mess or how my cities got into this mess. <laughs> you don't think about what is my responsibility here. And so when did the use of human excrement start being being phased out? Oh, it continues even today in some small amount. But I think it it really doesn't start until Mao's era. China was importing early from Japan and the United States early chemical fertilizers from the 1940s on. But it isn't until Mao, in the last years of his regime, before his death, that China built a big chemical fertilizer plant of its own. And then it continued to build and continued to build until today. China produces and uses more than half of all chemical fertilizers in the world. Well, that's put pretty much an end to uh, human excrement use. But uh, the only use that I've seen of any significance of this is in Napa cabbage or a few other vegetables, bok choy. They use it on those because they say it enhances the flavor. It's now a taste. Chem- human excrement gives a flavor to some vegetables that people miss. They don't find it in. And so you can get a good price for your vegetables that are fertilized with human waste. So, but that's a very small scale industry. So basically, it's gone from being a pollutant to being a resource, back to being a pollutant. So is there going to be, an, is there going to be another turn of the wheel um, as people maybe become aware of the consequences of using all that, all that synthetic fertilizer? Well, I, one, 
hopes that we can find some way to deal with this because China is today suffering as every major agricultural producing country is from terrible stream water ocean pollution because of chemical fertilizers. It would, they would suffer from human excrement too. They did that, but, but this is a new source of pollution. China has this problem. All of its major river ports, uh, those are polluted by chemical fertilizers. Streams, ponds, lakes have serious problems. All the major lakes, Tai Lake, Dongting, have these, this problem. So China is facing this and I think is likely to do more quickly about it than many other countries are doing. But, um, it's in, seems to be, at this point, it's inherent and I don't know how we can, you can cut back on the use of it, but, uh, it's so cheap to produce that farmers refuse to cut back on it. They just, the more is the better, you know, and, I I find it very interesting the sort of the this idea that thinkers have had for a long time that somehow the fertility has to get back from human waste food waste back to the farm which is where it started off in the first place that's why you need you know if you weren't taking anything off you wouldn't need to put anything back on but the the idea that this has to be done in in a in a sustainable fashion seems to come and go and as you say synthetic fertilizer is so cheap to buy that it's it's worth wasting um i, I are there any lessons do you think to be learned from the chinese history of using human excrement or is it just something we're going to have to figure out lessons to be learned um well, the first lesson to be learned, and I know this is an old theme, but it's one that we have backpedaled on for some years now. Get your population under control. We are too many of us. The world cannot absorb our waste products of all sorts, but this is one of the most basic waste. Um, beyond that, uh, one of the lessons that I think we always uh, see in this in this story and in other stories like it, put it that way. The solutions have to come more or less through poor people. They're the ones who get stuck with the jobs, the work. This requires work. If you're not, even if you're a, a farmer recycling your family's own waste, and your children go out and pick up all the the poop around the place and take it to the garden, as little kids have been doing for centuries. Um, these are the poor people who get stuck with it. And certainly the people in the cities recycling those waste and putting up with all of that. They may have been singing on the canals, but they were doing crap work. <laughs> and so, um, you know, rich people have to understand that, you know, it's, this is not just something that you can brush away, uh, either. And that, and that uh, there is there are questions of justice and humanity involved in how we distribute the work of dealing with this fundamental human biological outcome. I think the solution that we've been trying for the last several decades in some parts of the world for more than a century requires government and and some kind of government effort 
to deal with water pollution and waste management. And of course, we've done that through building sewers. And we've done it through building treatment plants. This requires taxation and government, and somebody's got to pay the bills, and somebody's got to manage these projects. And and so there is a role for government. But it seems to me this is a problem that cannot be just given to one or the other of these groups. We all have to take a responsibility, and rich people have got to take some moral responsibility for it, perhaps. They are, they're in a better position to afford it. They shouldn't put their, their, their crap on somebody else's life, you know. Um, and, but finally, governments have got to take a role in figuring out solutions for this. Uh, it's just like, in some sense, it's like any pollutant, but we haven't recognized it yet in the same level of other pollutants. We talk about air and water pollution. We think of chemicals. We think of stuff that gets into the air, but the flush culture has pretty well inured us to the, the problem. We don't think about this as being a problem. I think that's I think that's absolutely right. But I think one of the one of the really interesting things about it that makes it hard to think about it being a problem is if you've got an ozone hole, you stop people producing the chemicals that destroy the ozone. Uh-huh. Right. It's kinda hard to stop people producing excrement. I I say you have to understand that if we eat, we're going to excrete. So uh, this is why I end my book by saying I'm not a utopian after studying this problem. I don't think that there are easy solutions suggested on the left or the right politically, or that we just have to get our heads right with Jesus or become spiritual or study, you know, Buddhism or all these things are wonderful to do for some. But this is just basic human biology. So it's hard to be utopian about this one. When you consider that there is no, this is what makes us animals. We are part of the animal world. We can't change that. No cultural revolution, no renaissance, no poetry or philosophy will change this fundamental biological condition that we are in. This is us, and we're not going to ever be different. Donald Worcester. And in case you were wondering, there's a happy ending to his early years in the outhouse. When my grandparents put in an, an indoor toilet, I moved over there as fast as I could and stayed over there every night I could because I just loved the feel of it and the, you know, the cleanliness and all of that. I wanted to get away from it. Everybody does. But, as he said, there's actually no getting away from muck, just different ways of dealing with it. As usual, I'll put some follow-up information in the show notes at eatthispodcast.com. And I'm probably going to be taking a break now until the new year, at least from whole new episodes, though there may be some little things popping up in the feed. So do make sure you're subscribed wherever you get your podcasts. And if I may, I'd like to ask for one present from you. Please recommend the show to someone you know who might enjoy it. I'll leave you with that thought, and that, whatever you're celebrating, and we all need a little celebration to end this year, I hope it's joyous, safe, and hopeful. From me, Jeremy Churfus, and Eat This Podcast, goodbye, and thanks for listening.